pilgrimage. We may have a couple more people popping in to join us. We know we've got some parents dropping off kids downstairs. Uh, but in pilgrimage, for those of you who were here last week, you know that we are taking different increments of time and looking at spiritual practices across those increments of time. And of course, I, I took lifelong practices last week to make things really complicated. This week, we actually get into an increment of time that feels a little bit more reasonable. Um, we're talking about yearly practices, annual practices, uh, practices of faith that kind of keep us connected across a year. So I put together a little bit of a slideshow this week um, because there, there are some images in the Episcopal Church that go with yearly practice. And so, of course, what is this? What? You can't see from there. And can anybody tell from here where they're sitting? It's Christmas Eve, yeah. Um, this is a particularly important moment on Christmas Eve. Uh, there was a moment when my mom was working. My mom's also a priest. And uh, there was an interim priest at a church she was serving at who, we, as clergy kids, you tend to develop big opinions about things. And my sister and I developed big opinions about Episcopal liturgy. And there was one Christmas Eve where an interim priest where my mom was serving was very proud that she had gotten the Christmas Eve late service down to 38 minutes. And my sister, who was, I want to say in middle school at the time, was just in tears because in order to do that, she had cut out the singing of Silent Night with candles. And my sister said, it's not Christmas if you don't sing Silent Night with candles. And I know lots of Episcopalians who are of the very same opinion that you have to sing Silent Night with candles or it's not Christmas. So this is, I want to say this year, but it's, it's definitely after the renovation, singing Silent Night with candles or at the five o'clock service, candle night, candles and glow sticks. I think it was last year, the giant trees. Oh, you're right, it's the giant trees. So it was last year. So um, we had trees that were too tall last year. But, um, but there are moments in the Christian year that are, that are so remarkable, that are so important. We only do them once a year. And for some of us, that one four minutes of a year matters. It's one of the things we kind of hang on. Or maybe that's just me as a person who's a lifelong nerdy Episcopalian. But this is part of what it means to live a liturgical year. So this is way too small to really see, um, but it is a liturgical calendar. And there's lots of different iterations of the liturgical calendar. But tell me what you notice looking at this calendar. A lot of green. Yeah, so in, in the Roman Catholic Church, they call the time after Pentecost ordinary time. In the Episcopal Church, we just call it the season after Pentecost. But it's about half the year almost that's green. What else do you notice? It's a circle. What does that mean? Yeah, we go year in, year out. And there are some things that are always on the same day, 
And some things that depend on when Christmas falls, for instance, you never know quite how many days are going to be in Advent until you know what day Christmas is, and then you back up the Sundays before that. And then some things like Easter are based on the cycle of the moon and something called the golden number, and it's really complicated. Uh, so you just Google, when is Easter 2025 these days? But what else do you notice? Yeah, the lamb is in the middle. That's just traditional, but the idea is that the whole thing revolves around Jesus. There's a, a certain recounting of Jesus' life story across the year. What else? We don't follow this one quite exactly in, at Holy Communion. What are some things that we do different? What color is Advent here? Ooh, not at Holy Communion anymore. Advent is now blue. Yeah, so that's a, they, there's differences. You won't find a Roman Catholic church likely that has a blue Advent, but we like blue in the Episcopal tradition at large these days. There are Episcopal churches that are holdouts and still do purple, but it's not a universal thing. What else? Say it again. Yeah, it's divided by weeks. Um, you generally mark the Sundays. Uh, now, there might be other feasts. We don't tend to be um, a middle-of-the-week feast parish, except for Ash Wednesday and Holy Week. We don't, and then, um, yeah, and depending on when Christmas falls. But otherwise, those are about the only services that I could get people here for in the middle of a week. Uh, there are parishes that, if certain feasts fall in the middle of the week, um, they'll do a big festival feast, right? Like the Epiphany. We tend to celebrate the Epiphany on the Sunday closest to January 6th. Technically, according to the prayer book, I'm supposed to try to get everybody to church uh, two weeks after Christmas uh, on January 6th, whatever that falls. Uh, so there are parishes that that is the case. We tend to be more of a Sunday parish. Anything else you notice about it? Yeah, there's a couple pink spaces. We don't have a pink vestment set at Holy Communion because it seems expensive to me to get to use two days a year. Um, but pink tends to be, what does pink mean in the calendar? Anybody? It's a joy, so it's, it's a lighter feast day. It's, it's, the idea is it's like light purple. So next Sunday is Lettere Sunday in the season of Lent, which was typically, the, it's, it's about the midpoint of Lent, and it's, the, it's like you lighten the feast a little bit. So if you notice next week, our prayers that have been very, very confess our sins, our confession will get a little bit shorter, the music will get a little bit lighter, and we'll do that for the last two Sundays in Lent that aren't Holy Week. But so we, we sort of lighten things up a little bit at the Latere Sunday. If you were down at Trinity in the Central West End, where our local vestment maker gives them their vestments because he belongs to that church, they have some fabulous pink vestments. Um, and so they'll, they'll be wearing pink down there. I don't have a set of pink vestments. I don't really want a set of pink vestments, but some places they do it up. Pepto-Bismol ain't my favorite color of liturgical vestment. Yeah? We just started out with, uh, like, from 
Yeah, that's, that's about right. I, I like that. So all that green there, right, um, that big season of summer green is sort of, you've marked, you, you've spent the rest of the year marking the life of Christ, starting with Advent when you start announcing that Jesus is coming, Christmas, the birth, Epiphany, um, the sort of, and, and the Epiphany season, it varies in length depending on how long Lent is, or how, when Easter is falling, but it's kind of the, the proclamation of who Jesus is, and then you get Lent where you get kind of the build-up to the crucifixion, the resurrection at Easter, the season of resurrection, and does anybody know what happens to the first reading through Easter? So we'll, we'll talk about this. Um, on our last week, we'll do weekly practices, and we'll walk our way through the Sunday service. But typically, in a Sunday service, we read something from the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. We read something from the letters, and we read the gospel. In the Easter season, you substitute out the Hebrew Bible. You don't read the, what we used to call the Old Testament. What do you read instead? Acts of the Apostles. Because the idea is that everything that follows on Easter is the proclamation of the church. And Acts is sort of Luke's Gospel Part 2, when it's after Jesus' ascension, but it's the, the disciples, the early um, church, getting organized. So that's through the Easter season, we read the book of Acts. So also notice, it's kind of hard to notice because Easter is pretty thick, but um, Easter is actually longer than Lent. There are 40 days of Lent and there are 50 days of Easter. And that's important because we're more about Alleluia than we are about purgating our sins. Um, I try to help ask people to keep that in mind. I think we take Lent very seriously, and then Easter, well, by the time you get into Easter, you're also getting into graduation season and Mother's Day, and there's just a lot going on, right? But you're supposed to take Easter as seriously as you take Lent. You're supposed to be an Alleluia people, an Easter people. What else? Anything else you notice? Yeah, the, the, the question of calendars is actually really interesting. Um, on the website, if you go to the pilgrimage page, I put up a post for today, and I linked a few different resources. One of them is a book by John Swinton. Uh, John Swinton is a Scottish theologian. He's actually primarily these days works in questions of disability. Our, um, our Grace Gatherings group has read some John Swinton together. But John Swinton has a whole section of his book um, on time, Becoming Friends with Time, it's called, where he talks about how we developed calendars, how we developed like the idea of hours, even. The idea of hours comes from the monks. Our modern clocks, the earliest clocks, were in monasteries. And the very idea of time and measuring time was originally about measuring ways to pray. And so calendars and how we sort calendars and who organizes the calendars, well, the monks were the ones that uh, talked about that. Anything else you notice about the liturgical year? There is a great book on that page as well about the liturgical year by a Roman Catholic nun named Joan Chittister. Um, really lovely introduction to the various seasons. 
but this is sort of a crash course. So um, this is something that surprises people. There are rules about particular times of year. I'm, I've got one up there, which is that these days we tend to baptize people on one of the baptism feasts. We don't just randomly schedule baptisms most of the time. Um, and that surprises people sometimes in the Episcopal tradition because for a long time, baptism was something that happened in your living room uh, and the priest came over and you had like a little baby shower almost and the baptism happened. But since the, thank you, since the mid 19th, that, the food bill arrived, um, since the mid uh, 20th century, we've moved over to this model of having baptism happen at the principal worship service of the church. And so we do it on particular feast days. What are some other rules around liturgical time? Anybody know of any rules around the church here? What aren't we allowed to say right now? Alleluia. Now it's okay because we're not in the church space, right? But we don't say alleluia in Lent in church. Except, anybody know the exception? There's a big exception. Funeral liturgies. The funeral liturgy is always an Easter liturgy. And so even in the middle of Lent, we uh, take down the purple, we put up the white, we get out the baptismal um, candle, and we say, Alleluia, 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 uh, because the funeral liturgy is always an Easter liturgy. What else don't we do in Lent? We don't typically marry people in Lent. Um, we will in a very, like, like a really important, like this has to happen right now. Somebody's getting military deployed or um, in COVID, I did a wedding in Lent for a couple, one of whom was a nurse on a COVID wing and they were a same gender couple whose parents were not super supportive. And so it was like, yeah, we're, we're gonna get this marriage done, right? But except in a case like that, we typically don't do a marriage in Lent. We often don't in Advent as well. Any other rules that you're aware of? Adam. So um, typically, we think of marriage as marriage is really tricky, and it depends on where you are. So um, in Colorado, you're married as soon as you sign your own marriage license, and the only place a clergy person signs it is as a witness. So if the couple wanted to get married, they'd get a marriage license and sign it. Now, in the Episcopal Church, we're supposed to do legal weddings. Like our weddings are supposed to correspond to the legal ceremony. It's all supposed to happen at once, according to the Book of Common Prayer. Ellis and I didn't do that. Uh, because when we got married, it, our marriage wasn't recognized yet in the state of Missouri. So we had our license done in DC, and then we had the church wedding here. And we're doing a little bit, that question is getting a little bit more flexible, but the laws of the state of Missouri still require me as the clergy person to physically mail the thing. So that it's an interesting question because it gets us into this, uh, when is it the church and when is it the state? In France, clergy weddings don't count for anything. Um, in France, you're married by the judge. You can do whatever you want in the church. They don't care. But the, your marriage happens at the courthouse. 
So everywhere is a little bit different about this, but technically still these days in the state of Missouri, the priest is the officiant who marries you unless you get married down at the courthouse. And so I would only sign it the day of the actual wedding. And historically, marriage was a verbal contract. And so the two people saying their vows is what married them. And so I just sign off that that has happened. Other questions around these things? Marlene. We usually don't display flowers during Lent as well. Yeah, anything that smells of celebration is sort of, we fast from it during Lent. So there's a, um, a publication that the Episcopal Church puts out. One thing that's not on that big calendar are the, um, what we call lesser feasts and fasts. I'm going to go back to that thing. So um, what you see up here, red and white and gold tend to be feasts of the church. Purple, or blue in Advent, are fasts. So there's this balance in the church about there's both the things you celebrate more and the things that you back down for, you simplify for. So Lent is the great season of fasting. Advent, we've actually tried to change the character to be less penitential and more preparatory. That's part of the argument for blue instead of purple. But it's still this idea of simplifying, calming down, making room. You'll notice at Holy Communion, we reorient the front of the church service in both Lent and Advent to sort of mark that things are different right now. Um, but, but the church also has lesser feasts and fasts. So those are the saints' days that are not the big saints' days on the calendar. Um, saints' days like St. Luke's Day or uh, St. Polly Murray. Uh, those tend to correspond to the day of somebody's death. That's when you mark a saint. Uh, and in the Episcopal Church, they are voted on. Uh, saints have to be voted on by two general conventions in order to be called a saint. There's no sorting of miracles or papal organization. We take the saints we had before the Reformation and we add to it saints that have won the vote. Um, it, it's not quite like American Idol. It's, it's a little bit more um, concerted than that. But you have to be voted on by the General Convention of the Episcopal Church. There aren't that many lesser fasts. There's like one or two. Uh, and I'd, ha I'd have to probably like bug Beth Scriven to ask her what the lesser fasts are. We've got another priest in the room. But there's not that much with lesser fasts. Michael. Um, do you see how this, how this the yeah. So um, if you notice, January 1st is at the top. But the year for the church actually starts back a little bit. Where does the year start? Advent, Advent 1, that's right. So every year, there's, there's, there's actually two different liturgical cycles, two lectionary cycles. Um, so on Advent 1, every year, we start a new year of the Bible calendar. Um, and so they, those years are A, B, C. They're three-year cycles. And they mostly correspond to Matthew, Mark, Luke. John's gospel gets stuck in kind of all over the place. But the main gospel you read in year A is Matthew, year B is Mark, year C is Luke. So, um, and in Mark's year, you read quite a bit of John. For some reason, in Mark's year, you read chapter 6 of John, which is about bread, for about six weeks in a row in summer. You definitely know you're in Mark's year when there's like just... I, I think the lectionary committee got bored and they were like, we're gonna just break up this bread thing 
Uh, we need to get to dinner. Let's just, okay, we got it done, right? But, um, but so there's a cycle that goes every three years, and you get a good chunk of the Bible thematically across those three years. There's also a every other year cycle. There's year one and year two for the daily lectionary, the readings for every day. And that one's pretty easy to keep track of because even numbered years, when the bulk of the year is an even number, that's year two. The bulk of the year is an odd number is year one. So we're in year one right now, but it started on advent one. So at the end of 2022, you were in year one and then it goes around. So there's two calendars of Bible readings going simultaneously in addition to the, fa the feasts and fasts of the church. Everybody lost now? All right, so we've got baptism Sundays, but I want to complicate this a little bit more um, because there are other markers of time in the life of a church. What's the annual meeting? We just survived one. Anybody know? We elect vestry members and delegates. We update the financial news, though the vestry passes the budget. The church gets an annual report on how our finances are going. So the annual meeting is the business of the church. And members of the church are, we're a very democratic body. Um, and so members of the church all have a vote at the annual meeting. And so once a year we get together and we elect our representatives to the vestry, which is like the board of the church, and we do the business of the church. We had to do this in person in the pandemic, and we had all this horn honking to make motions and to vote for things, and it was very, very funny. And I'm very grateful that now we can have a virtual annual meeting if we need to, which is we amended our bylaws out in the parking lot. But it can be tricky. Um, there's also diocesan convention and general convention. So diocesan convention is once a year we come together as a whole diocese. The representatives elected by the parish and the clergy come together, and we vote on things as a diocese. Mostly we vote on the budget and we elect people to representative bodies. Sometimes we take positions. We'll probably make a statement this year in support of the LGBTQ community because of all the legislation. Do things like that. It gets really interesting when you have to elect a bishop. So um, Bishop Dion was elected our bishop, which happens at our diocesan convention. They can call a special convention if they want to but this one happened at our annual convention, which means the people that are elected by our annual meeting as a parish go to the diocesan convention, and a bishop has to have a majority vote in the laity and in the clergy. Uh, so they can't be elected just by the clergy, they can't be elected just by the laity, they have to carry a majority of both to become bishop. That convention meets every year, though we only elect a bishop in this diocese like once every 15, 20 years. It, it depends on when the bishop retires. Questions about that? Then every three years or so, because of the pandemic, um, we have a general convention, which is when the whole Episcopal Church gets together. That one works a little different in terms of electing a presiding bishop. That's a whole complicated process that you can look up on Google. Um, but but it's, that is the body that elects and affirms the election of the presiding bishop. It also sets the calendars it puts together the prayer book. It can amend the prayer book. It hasn't in a long time, but it can theoretically. Um, it can do, it can set position statements for the Episcopal Church. It doesn't actually, amending the prayer book means it's changing the doctrine. 
But even though the Episcopal Church makes a statement in support of reproductive choice, say, that does not make it necessarily a doctrinal statement that all Episcopalians have to agree to. Um, but there's a regular meeting of the General Convention of the Episcopal Church, which is another cycle. I also would add to it, and especially at Holy Communion, this is a big thing. We also have celebrations that map other calendars. Um, Black History Month is big here uh, because of the makeup of the congregation. Um, Latinx history or heritage, we've been doing bilingual prayer. Uh, pride can be a big thing. We turn our altar into a rainbow for pride and go and take the last Sunday of June and go uh, do a big service, interfaith service down in the park downtown. And then there's stewardship season, everybody's favorite liturgical time, um, when we ask you to support the ministries of the church. Would you add anything to that list? I'm going to let you all talk amongst yourselves here in a minute. So in addition to the big questions of how the church marks time, I want to invite you as well to think about how you spend your time across the year. Um, the presiding bishop at a general convention a couple of conventions ago released something he calls the way of love. This is meant to be what's called a rule of life which is to say, and this has become sort of a, a thing out there. There's this idea about a new monasticism. Uh, the theologian uh, Bonhoeffer, I think, was the one who came up with the term. He said, we need a new monasticism. But just a, a way of saying, like, Christians are going to have to take their faith seriously. And since there, there have been all these iterations about lay people living a rule of life. And so the presiding bishop offered one to the church, built around these practices of turn, learn, pray, worship, bless, go, rest. So I'm going to let the presiding bishop talk about his way of love in a short video, and then I'm going to tell you about my practice, and then I'm going to have you talk amongst yourselves. So here's the way of love promo for the Episcopal Church. It's a pretty wide picture of the Episcopal tradition that's being offered there. Everything from the monks in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, to uh, a pilgrimage to, um, uh, to West Africa, to, the, to Navajo land. To, it's, a, it's a pretty wide picture of the Episcopal Church's ministry that you get. Anything else? So it, I noticed, as, because I was trying to map things on time, a lot of what Bishop Curry talks about, he maps to one day, right? Pray daily, learn daily. There's a lot of daily. I actually think it might be served better to think about um, a different set of time. So this is a rule of life that I've been practicing for years now. I got it from a priest in San Diego. Um, and it's got slightly different chunks of time on it. So pray daily. I'm going to have uh, Julie and Jim and Nancy are going to be talking next week about praying daily. Uh, worship weekly, we'll do that the last Sunday. But serve joyfully, give generously, learn constantly, retreat yearly. Those to me all have certain kind of, there are times of the year that that gets emphasized more. I try to take some time apart every year. It's not that I don't love you all. It's not that I want to make my husband's life more complicated as he takes care of our son by himself. 
but I find that my own spiritual life is nurtured when I get away, when I get away on retreat, when I get away with some space. Um, giving generously, like we talked about stewardship season, we tend to think about our giving at particular times of year. And that's shifting a little bit, and we're learning to adapt this year at Holy Communion, but generally we tend to emphasize the giving stuff more toward the end of the year, because that's when most people are sort of looking at their end-of-year giving. That's sort of the pattern. Serving joyfully. That's something that some of us map more monthly than weekly. At least folks who tend to serve sustainably tend to think about that in slightly bigger chunks of time. Some people do huge amounts of daily or weekly service and big commendations to that. But I tend to ask people, take a look at your month and serve. So I'm going to have you all talk amongst yourselves. But before I do that, I want you to think about. Um, these questions ask you to think about the year, think about rhythms. But the last one, time that you could mark off as sacred, that is something you may want to think about over the next week or two weeks, or even between now and Easter. Uh, when I did community organizer training, they sent us off for about an hour by ourselves with our calendars and said, go back and look at the last several weeks, go back and look at the last several months, go back and look at the last year. How have you been intentional about your time? How have you made sure that there is time for rest, time for play, time for doing the kind of justice work you want to do? Take a look and think about how you are being intentional about your time. That's maybe not something you're going to accomplish at your tables, but something you ought to think about doing, taking your calendar and taking some time apart and just looking at it and saying, how could I carve off some time? So here's the questions. Uh, what time of year is your favorite? In church, in the city, in our world? Tell stories to each other. What makes it your favorite time of year? What are the rhythms of your year? Are there commitments you keep annually to yourself, to others? Are there feasts and fasts you celebrate? And finally, what time could you mark off as sacred? Anybody know what the word sacred means? Something with blood? Something with blood? Uh, well, not quite. In the Hebrew, yeah, but... Set apart. Set apart. It just means set apart. Traditionally, they did that with blood, but... It just means set apart. It, it, the Latin roots are tied. Um, but it just means set apart. How can you set apart some time? And for what does, time, does that time that, that you've set apart exist? So I'd invite you all, maybe you three could meet with you four, but talk at your tables. Um, I'm going to give you about almost all of the next 15 minutes, and then we'll come back for the last few minutes for some Q&A. I would encourage you. If you can, in the next few weeks, take some time, discover some time to spend some time with your calendar. Look at how you're spending your day, your week, your month, your year. See if you can set aside some time for yourself to take yourself to the Alamo Draft House or take yourself to a monastery. If you need a recommendation, I got a lot of recommendations for monasteries. But find some time. Um, give yourself the gift of time. Next week, Julie will be with you all to talk about the daily practice of prayer with support from Jim McElroy and Nancy Donahue, and you don't want to miss it. And I will be thinking of you all on the slopes in Colorado and back with you in two weeks. 
uh, to talk about Eucharist. Thank you all so much. Ellis, do you know what dinner is? I know it's noodles. So